Just a couple of comments and take your Bible and join with me in James chapter 3. We're going to reconnect to the book of James this morning. I'm with you the next three weeks before I travel, and uh, I'll have uh, somebody pinch hit for me, but uh, I will be, Lord willing, in the book of James for the next three weeks, kind of reconnecting us to that uh, little letter with such big impact potential. Uh, But a couple of things I want to highlight as one of your pastors and elders. Um, One is we are endeavoring intentionally to communicate and challenge you to recognize the convictional priority of making disciples. When Jesus, with all authority in heaven and earth, met his disciples, he said, with this authority, I'm going to give you a non-negotiable commandment, make disciples. While you're going in the traffic pattern of your life, Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing, that has to do with evangelism. doesn't mean you literally baptize them. You lead them to the place where they bear witness publicly to their faith in Christ. You make disciples by baptizing and by teaching them everything Jesus commanded. Now, that is the Great Commission. Jesus said, I am with you all the way to the end of the age. You're not alone. I will assist you. I will empower you. I will enable you. And this is my will. I want you to make disciples. That is not for pastors. It is not for missionaries exclusively or seminary students or particularly gifted people. It is for every called by grace, saved and transformed by that grace to bear witness to Jesus Christ, to help somebody know him and become like him. Discipleship, simply put, is enabling someone to know who Jesus is, to lead them to trust him, follow him, obey him, and become like him, and ultimately enter into his mission. That must be, or should be, a conviction that you have as a Christian. A a conviction is a compelling belief. Compelling beliefs are beliefs you hold that are so impactful, they move you to adjust lifestyle or activity. No conviction is truly a conviction if it doesn't motivate you to make decisions and take actions consistent with those beliefs. And one of the dangers in our form of Christianity is we can know things, say we believe things, we have a conviction about things, but it doesn't inform our choices or our behavior. So I want to challenge you publicly and personally in partnership with uh, our elders and our, our deacons that this is our intention to encourage you in that way. And secondly, the second thing I want to punctuate is connection. Christ-likeness, which is the goal of Christianity, Electing love before the foundation of the world was to the end that you might become like Christ, conformed to the image of the firstborn son. The goal of Christianity is not just your deliverance from sin and salvation. It involves your sanctification, becoming like Christ. That requires intentional relationships. Christ-likeness requires intentional relationship. You can't do it in isolation. You do it in community. You do it where God's gifted people, and if you're a Christian, you have assets, divine assets, spiritual gifts that are designed to help Harry become what Harry's supposed to be. And Harry cannot become what he's supposed to be in isolation. 
because the way the economy of heaven works is the church of Jesus Christ is populated by agents of influence with supernatural capacity that is to bear influence in the life of the one and others. That takes intentional activity. We live in a fast, go fast, isolation culture. I can live my whole life and never deal with anybody. Christianity requires intentionality, which is why you're hearing Steve emphasize Bible studies. This group, as small as it is compared to the larger service we will share in the main sanctuary, is still too big to become what God wants you to be. Because you can be here today and not engage anybody. And so the Bible studies are subsets designed for life, community, Bible study. Obviously, the Word of God is foundational, but it's doing life together. Knowing, being known, known well enough that you can help and encourage me, and me knowing you well enough to help and encourage you. If you understand what I just said, would you say amen? All right, so amen. Can I tell you what that means? We agree. (laughs) So be it. And implicitly housed in amen is, I'm going to do it. So I want to encourage you to stay focused in that way. Now, discipleship, James chapter 3. If there's any book in the New Testament that's focused on discipleship, this is it. This is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Church has been dispersed like seed because of persecution. Apparently, James is hearing reports about the behavior of those who have confessed Christ, and he is attempting to strengthen and mature them in an understanding of what real Christianity looks like and how it lives. I've summarized the book of James this way, the lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. Genuine faith works, and it works like this. And we've been working our way through different installments, whether it has to do with how you deal with trials, how you manage your tongue, how you behave as it relates to people attitudinally and practically, how you care for the least and those without. There are a number of things he has touched on already, and we have found our way to chapter 3. And as tempted as I am to review everything, I'm going to refuse to do that so we can make some progress. Chapter 3 follows the hub and heart of the book. The hub and the heart of the book is real faith is more than words. You see it in chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Verse 17, faith, if it has no works, is dead. It's by itself. Works doesn't save you, but saving faith always works. He goes on to say in verse 20, Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? It's empty. It's vain. It's just words. Saving faith is more than words. It is the display of the work that validates those words. And that's what chapter 2 has been about. Real faith is more than words. Chapter 3. But real faith is displayed in your words. Words do matter. So the connection is real faith really works, and one of the chief verifying and kingdom-building works of the Christian is found in the work of his words. Because words work. 
Words have impact and influence. That's why this section is given. So that you will build God's kingdom, not destroy God's kingdom. One commentator said, words are works. They can work to build the kingdom or they can work to destroy it. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he connects one of the chief places words get used and articulates the trouble and the test of being a teacher, being in an elevated position of responsibility because that is a place of responsibility and accountability. Verse 1, chapter 3, literally, stop being teachers. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Stop the desire. The imperative written in this way means stop an action that is in progress. The pattern of God's people apparently was to seek the elevated position of a teacher. And we rehearsed this at length. A teacher in the early church enjoyed prominence. Ephesians chapter 2, the church, the household of God, verse 19, you are the household of God. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Apostles are those who were the foundation layers of the early church. They had authority to plant and advance the church. And then prophets were the recipients of divine revelation and truth as to guide and challenge God's people so that they could know and follow God's will. They were the foundations, first the apostles and then the prophets. Third were the teachers, prophets and apostles. They, they traveled, they planted churches, they had a missionary-like ministry, but there were churches planted that needed teachers to disciple and guide God's people in the truth and doctrines of the kingdom of God, and they would stay behind. They had an elevated position. We talked about this. Rabbi was a valued title to enjoy in the Jewish community, got transferred to the church community, and and rabbi or teacher was regarded as someone highly respected When you said rabbi, when you said teacher, in that context, you were talking about someone who enjoyed high esteem, high privilege. And they enjoyed lots of privileges, culturally, practically. People would care for them. People would host them. People would prioritize them. You were enjoying a level of status and prestige if you were a teacher in the early church, and there were people that were attracted to that. Not any different than today. I want to be the person who's regarded, respected, prioritized, and promoted. And James says, because of that propensity in our humanity, even in the kingdom of God, stop it. Stop it because there is a higher accountability and the greater probability of hypocrisy. You talk a lot, you're responsible for a lot which is why he says in verse 1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such you will incur a stricter judgment. So he's saying accuracy in what you say as a teacher, as a disseminator of doctrinal truth is critical. You need to be careful, thoughtful. And by the way, there's a high accountability. There's a consequence to hypocrisy. 
To whom much is given, much is required. You know a lot. You've been gifted to teach a lot. You're privileged to study a lot. And you communicate and talk a lot. You're responsible for what you say. If you're a parent downloading influence to your children, you're responsible for what you say. Get it right and live it to the degree that God enables you to live it because teachers here talking about the office of a teacher, gifted ones given by God, Ephesians chapter 4, is victory gifts to the church to promote Christ's likeness. That's an office. But if you're a teacher, not an officer, you still have accountability for what you say and how you live. And I just want to punctuate that because one of the dangers of Christianity in our context and culture is we know a lot, we say a lot, therefore we must live it, not just say it. Don't seek to be a teacher. Don't be the online presence who expresses their opinion freely, carelessly, as if you're an authority. I think I said this before, but it troubles me how many Christians feel the liberty to go online and communicate with authority their view on things. What happens if you're not right? What happens about the influence created by those comments, both for good or not good, particularly not good? And I see it all the time. Seek not to be a teacher. Don't elevate yourself to that authority. If God calls you to it, be responsible. You will incur a stricter judgment. There will be a greater standard. You know more, you're responsible for more. Be careful and make sure if you're going to say it, you're accurate, and two, you do it. That's the encouragement. We're strongly encouraged to avoid teaching because it's a tougher standard and a greater consequence, and because this vocation and action involves a very dangerous tool, which is the connection that we're coming to as it relates to the tongue. We will incur a stricter judgment. What's the tool a teacher uses? Their tongue. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble, watch it in what he says, because that's what a teacher does. He talks. He is a perfect man, a teleos man, not perfect in the sense that he has no imperfections. He's mature because he just got done saying we all stumble in many ways. James, the pastor of the church, is saying, I stumble. I don't just stumble. And by the way, that slip up, it's not so much intentional. When you stumble, you typically don't say, I'm going to stumble here. You just stumble. You trip. The propensity for failure is high. We all, including James, including Harry, including John MacArthur, including you name your favorite preacher or biblical commentator, we all stumble. So you need to be careful because you're accountable, and you need to be humble because inevitably there's a slip-up, a failure. So this involves the failure of the tongue and the problem of talking and the challenge of living. The key tool of a teacher is the tongue, and there is evident weakness related to the tongue, and that's why there is a focus in this section on the tongue. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble, verse 2, and what he says, he's a perfect man, a mature man, present tense. The pattern of his life is he's not a stumbler. 
Doesn't mean he never stumbles, but the pattern of his life is he's not a stumbler as it relates to his tongue, stumbling in what he says. He's a mature man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Follow with me. I'm going to read the text, and then we'll back up and talk about it. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths, now the bit is a figure relating to the tongue. If we put bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. So a figure of bits, ships, and going to be a rudder. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Verse 5, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. So he talks about direction. He talks about production, great things, a consequence of the action of the tongue, both for good or not good. Destruction, see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Another figure related to the little member, the tongue, and its effect. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. Think elephant on a little ball. Think about the capacity of trainers to train wild animals. Verse 8, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth, this is just a a commentary on reality, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, that contradiction. My brother, these things ought not to be this way. It's not proper. Now watch this. Verse 11, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Wouldn't you agree with me that as it relates to biblical discipleship, the pastor at the church of Jerusalem talking about the lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian, is concerned about the impact, influence, both for good or not good, of the tongue. Discipleship, Christianity, is undeniably connected to your words. Your faith involves more than words, but your faith involves your words. It either validates it or invalidates it. It either reveals it or contradicts it. Words matter. So we move from the trouble and test of the teacher to the more general principles, I'm calling it the test and the trouble of the tongue. The ground or reason, I'm going to give you some truths as we unpack this passage, and one of my fellow elders said today, what section are you teaching? I told him the number of verses, and he says, you're going to cover all that today. I said, probably not. But the good news is we'll have a stopping point. I want to relate to you convictional truths about your tongue. Because your words matter. 
and they matter because of what James is articulating here, and that is that your tongue, first of all, is a high point and probability tool of failure. We all stumble in many ways, and if you don't stumble with your tongue, you're a mature man. None are above falling short, stumbling in the accuracy or application or use of their words. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46, when the dedicatory prayer of Solomon was offered, he said this, when they sin against you, Solomon praying to the Father, when they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin. And by the way, slipping up is missing the mark. Missing the mark is sin. You don't have to be intentional in the misuse of your words to sin. And so when it talks about slipping up, you see that in chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of it all. So when we talk about slip up, well, that's my mistake. I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I get that. It's not the same as I wanted to say that, but it still violates the will and the way of God and makes me guilty and worthy of conviction as it relates to the consequence of that failure. So what James is arguing for is the probability that because of the weakness of our humanity and the reality of our depravity, we will fumble the ball verbally. So lest you be lifted up in some way, this is meant to humble you and to communicate the probability that I too can fail as it relates to the use of my tongue. Nobody's above it. And everybody needs to own it. It's a reality. We all stumble in many ways. And the most obvious way we stumble is with this little instrument. Number Thought number two, or truth number two, there is no sin which is easier to fall into and harder to avoid than the sin of the tongue. I think I said this to you before, but you will, over this next year, produce, if your words were recorded, 132 books, 400 pages each. If your words were consolidated and printed, the volume of words you will use on average will produce at the end of this year, 132 books, 400 pages long. 25,000 words a day for the average man, 30,000 words for the average woman with wind gusts up to 75,000. <laughs> you talk a lot. We talk a lot. So the probability and the multitude of words, the Proverbs say, there wanteth not what? Sin. Talk a lot. Have a high probability of failure. This is Proverbs ten nineteen. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. He who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs thirty four thirteen. Keep your tongue from evil. So you you need to recognize vulnerability, and therefore you need to commit to vigilance and diligence. Keep your tongue from evil. 
the exhortation implies that though it's probable too many words I'm going to fumble, and everybody does fumble, there are consequences to fumbling, which we're going to get into. And secondly, I can mitigate or inhibit or limit the potential failure by keeping my tongue. Proverbs 13.3, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. James 1.26, we already taught it. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, you can bridle your tongue. You can restrain it. You should restrain it. 1 Peter 3.10, let him who means to love life and see good days. You want to be blessed? Refrain your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. The exhortations recognize that there is an important priority to guard, to be diligent with, and to be vigilant with what I say, how I say it, and the target for which I say it. Words work. They have import and effect. Verse 3. Oh, no, let's stay with 2. I want you to find this encouraging thought that comes out of verse 2. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Watch this. Able to bridle the whole body as well. You can, listen to this. You control this, you can control this. Which is why it's not just a focus of weakness, it's a focus for influence. If I can govern and manage, restrain, If I can control, I can't tame it, but I can control by the Spirit of God, with the priorities of God and the Word of God and the help of the people of God, I can control my tongue. And if I can control my tongue, if I can bridle it, it affects all of my life. All of my life. It is a governor that has an effect on everything, which leads me to my third point. Managing your tongue is both an indicator and a governor. It's an indicator because it's a gauge. If as the pattern of your life, verse 2, you're not stumbling with your words, you're a mature person because the pattern of your life is revealed in the way you use your words. It's like a light on the dashboard of your life. If I manage my tongue, my words work for good, not destruction. I am a mature man. And on the other side, if I don't manage my words, if I'm not careful with what I say and how I say it, I'm an immature man. Because my tongue is a gauge, an indicator of my spiritual condition. You can measure me by my words, is what James is saying. It is an indicator. For by your words, Jesus said it this way, Matthew 12, 37, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. And listen, if the words coming out of your mouth result in a dashboard indicator light saying, engine trouble. You know that little yellow one that blinks 
that looks like an engine, that means there's something core amiss and it needs to be addressed. If my words are not God-honoring, people edifying, I have engine trouble. I have a soul problem. I'm not just an influence that's harmful to others. I am in jeopardy myself. Verse 3, punctuates. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths, and you know what a bit is. You may not be a horse person, but you know that there is a bit that goes into the horse's mouth to help control and direct the animal. Big horses, lots of horsepower, no pun intended. They have a lot of potential, a lot of strength. And the way bits work is they put pressure on what? Your tongue, their tongue. A bit presses on the tongue, and there's different kinds of bits. And if you're a hard, stubborn, I want to do my own thing horse, you need a more severe bit, one that bites when you fail to fulfill the desire of the rider. So what James says in verse 3, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Punctuating by way of illustration, you control the tongue, you direct the whole focus of that animal or the direction of that intention. We put bits into the horse's mouths. So bits are governors and they govern the thing that governs the animal. They influence the tongue, which is a tool to direct control and see to it that the outcome is productive. So my third truth derived from this, you ought to manage your tongue with an eye towards the fact that it's an indicator, a gauge of your maturity or immaturity, and it is a governor, it's a definer, it's a director. You control your tongue, it's a source of weakness, but it's also a source of powerful influence. So control it. A bridle directs and defines the direction and productivity of that animal. In like manner, your tongue defines and directs what kind of person you will be, what kind of influence you have, what kind of direction your life will take. The tongue should be a key point of personal focus because of its weakness and potential influence. It has power. It has power in your life, and it has impact in the lives of others. James says, if you're a real Christian, you need to understand the vulnerability of this weakness. You need to focus on it, and you need to be victorious with it as a pattern of life. It is a key to your maturity, and it is a key to your ministry, both at home and in the pe- among the people of God and in the world in which you live and function. Therefore, wise, this is the fourth thought I have for you, wise and genuine faith should target and focus on the tongue. It should be a focal point of your life and intentionality. It's stubborn. It's untamable, but it's highly influential. It's impactful for you and for others. 
real Christians recognize the influence and weakness of the tongue. It has big influence. It controls the entire body of the horse that is powerful, verse 4, and the ships also, they, though they are so great and are driven by great winds, strong winds, fierce winds. They're still directed, notice the point of emphasis, by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. You can control your tongue. You can control the direction of your life. That's the point. Your tongue is, is the instrument that deals with big cargo-carrying ships. And even if the winds are fierce, which means the challenges are high, and it's interesting, winds are required for movement in a ship. So the rudder is a critical instrument to take the fierce winds, whether they're with you from the side or behind you, to maximize them so that you take a direction that the Spirit of God, I'm going to argue, is the best pilot in cooperation with the Word of God, which is your influencing compass for life. The Bible is the revelation of reality. The Bible is the direction guidebook for life. This is the way it is. When we're talking about the Bible, we're talking about a gift from heaven meant to define your direction, your priorities, your mission, your reactions, your intentions. This is the Word of God. Now, I know I'm talking to the choir, but I want to punctuate it. This is the Bible. And the Bible is theonoustos. It's inspired by the Spirit of God. It is God-given. It is a creation of heaven. Gifted to men, the Holy Spirit superintended, so that every word, every jot and tittle, verbal plenary, all of the words are inspired, God-given. They are preserved supernaturally for our benefit. They are accurately translated. We have a copy in our hands, and it is designed to be the compass from which the Spirit of God pilots your life. And ships, big ships with lots of cargo, lots of valuables, lots of things that matter. Your life, even though the winds are fierce, even though those winds may be against you, that small rudder, this instrument, can define the direction you take according to the will of the one who is piloting your life, which is a cooperative effort between the Spirit of God and the man or woman of God. It's a little member, and it has big impact, big influence on the direction of your life. Listen, we could rehearse today. We could bear personal testimony. I could stop and say, talk to the person next to you about words that you have spoken that have handicapped your capacity to get where you wanted to go injured something valuable, changed the course of the direction of your life. Words spoken have power, and they have impact. Like big ships, your life, controlled by this little rudder, despite the resistance of winds, fierce winds, great winds, you can direct your path in cooperation with the Spirit of God because you manage this instrument. It is a bridle or a bit. It can control your direction. 
no matter how strong, rudder, despite the size of the boat, despite big resistance, it can control the direction that your life is taking. Big boats, big life issues, big wind, big difficulties, big challenges. Your tongue can direct. It has directional influence and impact, life direction and impact. Verse 5, why should you pay attention? The power of its capacity to direct your life and the power it possesses to impact others in your life. I take verse 5, so also the tongue is a small part. See the emphasis, like a small rudder, like a small bit. Verse 5, small part of the body. Now watch this, and yet it boasts of great things. Now this is the only place in the New Testament where the word boast is used, this particular word. And it's troublesome because you don't really have a way to understand in what way does he mean boast. Is it the boasting in my weakness that the power of Christ might be manifest, boasting of big things, boasting of good things, or is it talking big about things that aren't helpful? When it talks here of boasting about big things, I want to suggest to you that he's going to turn a corner and talking about negative boasting that's destructive. But I want to apply verse 5 to the boasting of great and good things, to talk about big things, to talk about things that are great. With this little tongue, I can boast of Harry's great performance, arrogance, I can be conceited, I can bear witness in a negative way. I can boast in a bad way. Big talk. I think that's partially what can be applied in the next section, the consequences of bad talk or big talk that's inappropriate. But Harry Walls can also, and you can as a follower of Jesus Christ, talk about big things. Not big talk, but talk about big things. Boast in great things. Who is great? God is great. What has God done? Great things in the person and the saving work of His Son. Who can bear witness with His tongue as an evangelist or as a praise agent of worship? I can. I can boast about a great God who's done great things. And the instrument of the productive influence of my life is coming from my mouth. My tongue can boast of great things. It can highlight big things. I can boast about God. I can boast about the gospel of God. I can declare it loud, impactfully, and productively. Let me tell you what your tongue is. It's an instrument for productive good. It's a means of not only directing your life, it's a means of producing great benefit through your life. Speaking up and speaking out about great things. Karen and I are going through the Psalms and we're in the latter part of the 90s into the early 100s. And it's over and over again, Yahweh reigns, bless Yahweh. When God's people get together, bless Yahweh. You know what bless means? Elevate God, affirm positively, bear witness to who He is and how He is. 
When you see people, bless Yahweh. When you're with God's people, bless Yahweh. What do you use to bless Yahweh? Words. You give thanks to Yahweh. You declare His majesty, His goodness, His greatness, His capacity. Why does this instrument matter? It's powerful. It's powerful to direct your life no matter the headwinds in your life. It's powerful to direct your life even if you've got some stubbornness and willfulness in your life, like the horse who wants to do its own thing. It's powerful because your words can boast about the greatest of all, the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yahweh is worthy, and you bless Yahweh with your tongue. James is saying, focus on it because it has great influence to direct your life for productivity in your life and then for potential destruction in your life, which is where we're obviously going to pick up next time. Let's read it. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. So this is the the turn from productivity going where the pilot desires, going where the rider wants to go, utilizing the power and the potential of the, the cargo ship to the potential damage that the tongue can do when it boasts not of great things, but when it talks big about no things, things that are meaningless or futile or inappropriate, boasting about those things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The figure, the fire, small one, spark if you will, is the tongue, verse 6. The tongue is a fire. And it can cause not just great defining direction in your life, not just great and significant production and impact in your life, but what? Great destruction through your life. My tongue, and nobody needs a commentary on fires in the state of California. It doesn't take a big fire to do big damage. It takes a small spark to ignite a big fire that does thousands of dollars of damage and great loss. We just came through the sequoias. I was there a couple years ago before the fires of 19, and it's shocking how many sections of these massive, beautiful forests are now black and dead. This instrument can create great damage. Some of you are living validation of that. Someone has said something to you that has framed and affected and informed your view of you even to this day. Some pastor, some parent, some coach, some friend, some peer. Use this instrument to impact your whole life. And some of you are living in a circular cycle of damage and destruction because of a word. And guess what? You possess that power. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. Does this matter? Yeah, it matters. To direct your life, to produce good things, and also because it has great damage potential, destruction 
James says real Christians understand the weakness of this instrument and the potential influence of this instrument. It needs to be governed because it will control the outcome of your life. If that makes sense, would you say amen? amen. All right, it's a big deal. So I'm going to encourage you to have some candid conversations because you need to know how severe the bit needs to be in your mouth. If you put a severe enough bit in a horse's mouth, I don't care what that horse wants to do. He's going to follow your directions. Some of us need a stronger bit. And I would invite the people that love me to help put that bit in my mouth. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to think it through. I pray that this will be helpful to both challenge us and change us. And I commit this group to you to the end that we are living proof of a God who is worthy and a gospel that saves. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Sunday.